Oh, we're live. We are live. Welcome to the What's... Interop, uh, the oh, show well. which is all about understanding the decentralized economic networks that make up the interchain. My hope is that my listeners will gain a better understanding of the networks that make up uh, this, the interchain. Sorry, I had some, uh, <laughs> I had echo in the background. I was a little perturbed. But yeah, my, go my hope is that my, my listeners will gain a better understanding of the topology of the ne these networks, the technologies that make them possible, and the opportunities it provides to investors and developers. And also, sometimes we talk about drama uh, that happens in the interchain, and uh, that's... Uh, going to be, be a, a good chunk of the conversation that we have today. My name is Sebastian Quichio, and I'm here with Jack Zamplin, who, um, um, yeah, I mean, introduce yourself for those who don't, uh, who don't know you, but like your, your list of, uh, of, um, you know, achievements and, uh, and sort of cred in the, in the cosmos industry is like far too long for me to list off the top of my head. So, um, Oh, well, yeah. Seb Sebastian, that's flattering. Thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, yeah, my name is Jack Samplin. Uh, these days, I'm sort of primarily the uh, CEO of Strangelove. Well, no, I guess I'm co-founder or shogun of technology. You know, it doesn't really matter. Uh, Strangelove is the, the sort of company that I've centralized a lot of my activities in. Um, that started as a validator company uh, with my friend Tyler Schmidt. Um, and now all of my activity in Sommelier, in Core One, and sort of broadly in Cosmos, we, we also are working with the ICF to ship a number of features for the Cosmos Hub, is, is there. Uh, we've got 12 employees now. So um, yeah, I guess I've been the product guy in Cosmos for a while. That's kind of been my, my thing. Yeah, yeah. Um, how, how, do you, <laughs> how do you manage to have all these hats and still say, stay sane and, uh, and have a life, assuming you have a life. <laughs> uh, well, I sleep, I sleep eight hours a day, which is, I, I think key. Um, and, you know, I, I have a killer case of ADHD that, that keeps me switching between things continually. So um, yeah, I think that those, those are probably the two things. Oh, cool. Um, you know, actually like it, it occurs to me that one, like you've never been on Epicenter. I don't think you have. I haven't, no. And we haven't actually had very many conversations. Like I, I know that you know, like we've met in real life a few times, but yeah. it's yeah, we, we haven't had really like a long form conversation. I think that was any longer than just like, hey, how you doing? And like um yeah. So um yeah, it's good good to finally chat. So yeah, um, I, I, I'm really excited yeah. as a longtime Epicenter listener. And, you know, I, I worked with Sonny and sat with him while he's taped a number of those episodes. Love you guys podcast. Brian and the Chorus One team, obviously great friends. Um, and yeah, so I'm really excited to finally do this. And I, I like this new format. I am a huge live stream fan. So uh, this is great. Yeah, this this is very intimidated for me. So <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> The, the the whole live stream thing I'm, I'm not quite used to and and also like i don't know it, it, yeah i i think this is the format moving forward that i want to do with this because like st stuff happens so quick in this ecosystem like i couldn't have recorded this episode and then like released it in two weeks from now it just wouldn't make any sense and, and so I, yeah. I, it, it's more of a question of like getting used to getting used to doing content and releasing it right away and like being comfortable with it not being perfect and like the audio quality not being like super high def and you know like being mastered and all this stuff your studio setup looks fantastic by the way i, I really like <laughs> um yeah well like my my uh 
my, my our, our audio engineer has been like really pushing me to have like really great audio audio quality for for all these years. And I I think I need to take a little bit of a step back for that in, in in order to put some content out a little bit more frequently. So we'll see how that goes. Um, anyway, so yeah, give, give us give us a bit like uh, give us a quick summary update. Um, yeah, yeah. I want I want to I want to get that stuff out of the way because there's lots to talk about regarding Juno, and sure. um, <laughs> and then there's there's some of the topics that I'd like to discuss with you. But yeah, what's going on with sommelier? Like, so perhaps like first, like what is sommelier for those yeah. who aren't familiar with it and. Um, where are you guys at in terms of like building that product? Yeah, for sure. So Sommelier is an automated uh, management for different DeFi protocols. Um, the first protocol that we're going to be launching with, um, we've, we've been through a few pivots on exactly what the first protocol we're going to be launching with uh, is. Originally, it was an impermanent loss for Uniswap v2. Then we were working on automated management for Uniswap v3 positions, which is a fascinating, extremely interesting problem. And... Uh, Turns out automated rebalance is a guaranteed losing strategy. Um, and we only found that out after uh, sinking in months of backtesting and uh, protocol work on that. Um, so we have now pivoted uh, the first seller that we're going to be launching. Um, sellers are our version of vaults. They are, think of them as managed vaults. And instead of being managed by like one key somewhere or this keeper network where you're trusting one keeper and you're incentivizing them not to steal all your money. Um, it is managed by a full validator set and you have the same security as any other Cosmos chain has, uh, which I think is a huge step up in terms of custody for DeFi applications. That's kind of what I'm most excited about with Sommelier, um, launching a ton of these sellers and, and being able to make that Sommelier chain a huge custodian for these different DeFi protocols. And the revenues for token holders in Sommelier will come from the revenues generated by those products. The first one of those is going to be a seller on Aave. So this is uh, users will interact with this solely through mainnet Ethereum. Um, they will, you know, go deposit into the sommelier contract on Ethereum. And then all of the management happens behind the scenes. Um, and this is going to offer the highest stable coin yields available in Aave. And it will intelligently rebalance between them. So very conservative strategy, kind of easy to understand with a really highly technical product where there's a Cosmos chain behind it, all kinds of stuff going on. We thought that this would be the best way to launch it. Yeah, that's interesting. So I, I know that you there there was some live functionality, I think at some point, I, I tried to go on the website today, like use it, but it's, it says now that it's launching soon. So yeah. has there been like a sort of pause in the product development in order to release some some new features? Like what's, what's the status there? Yeah. That, that, that's a great question. Um, you know, our, Zachy and I's sort of development philosophy is just keep building and try to find customers for intermediate versions of your product all along the way. So there's a couple of big pieces to this. We have the Solidity Smart Contract architecture, which is interesting in this whole big piece of thing. There's many, many billion dollar protocols built on top of Solidity Smart Contract architecture. So that, that was one piece of what we wanted to do. You know, we have a team that's building this Aave seller right now. They're learning from and have worked on some of the best ETH smart contracting protocols. That's really cool. There's this whole world of front-end development where you provide front-ends for these smart contracting experiences. Obviously, when you have a experience that spans multiple chains, that front-end development level of difficulty becomes higher. 
Then we have the back end um, sort of chain side, a chain side development. That's been my specialty. And we also have a data science team, which is, uh, you know, looking at the performance of some of these products that we're looking at over time and ensuring that they're going to be profitable for users. So that's four different engineering disciplines at SOM. And it's taken us a while to build up the team and build up the strength in all of those disciplines to be able to launch a final product. But along the way, we've been launching intermediate products. The chain dev side that I've been a part of, we launched the Gravity Bridge. We've got a couple of people who are using our Gravity Bridge implementation. Um, we worked very closely with the Althea team to uh, build the initial Gravity Bridge implementation. We've been very active on that side of things. The front end team, um, the first thing they built was the easiest way to add liquidity to Unisoft V3. We took the product of our data science team, which was producing some uh, price predictions for different uh, pools with Uniswap to help users, to help prevent users from losing money on Uniswap V3, because it's very easy for your position to go out of range. You've got essentially 100% impermanent loss at that point, um, and you're not making any trading fees. So if you have some prior data about how prices have happened, you can make some kind of intelligent guess about what they're going to look like in the future. And the front end we had was just Ethereum smart contract infrastructure with no management. Um, and the purpose of that was to sort of spike out on building uh, those, those type of front ends and to help push the product along. So right now, everyone is kind of heads down integrating all of these threads we've been working on for the last year and a half-ish. Um, and we're very close to launching a product. We have a full rebrand coming out soon, which is also why the site looks a little sparse. Uh, but a lot of exciting things happening behind the scenes there. Um, it's taken a long time to kind of get all of those pieces to a point where we could integrate them. And then also there's been, you know, I think if anyone's worked at a software company where you have a bunch of people, pieces and teams and you're bringing them together that's always a you know a challenging piece of the software development life cycle um, that's going really well everyone's working really hard uh, but the upshot of it is uh, we, we don't really have anything out right now because all of the work that we had done prior we've stopped maintaining and we're focused on this Ave seller and kind of bringing that to market uh, we should see some more information about that within the next month so what's that going to look like uh, on, on Aave? Is that a, a specific Aave v3 functionality? Because, I, I, yeah. In Aave, it's it's going to be on top of their stablecoin lending. Um, so there's different yields for each of the different stablecoins that you can lend on Aave. And this protocol will intelligently switch to the highest yield. Um, and you would put stable coins into it and we just find the best yields in Aave. It's uh, you know, a very simple product, very understandable, um, very like low risk in a lot of ways. I think the Aave, <laughs> the Aave lending rate is like the risk-free return of crypto <laughs> in a lot of ways. So we just want to offer that to users in the best, the best way to make money in that, that type of market. Um, we will be launching much higher beta products in the future, but this is definitely a very conservative product we're launching with initially. Okay, cool. And, and, and uh, any any uh, estimates on like when this uh, new version will come out? Uh, yeah, I think we're targeting currently the end of the month. Okay. Oh, cool. Yeah, the, the, the front end is a very long way. Um, we have the, the new marketing site basically complete. The Strange Love team has been working on the front end side of this. Uh, we've hired out a front-end team and we're doing a number of projects throughout the ecosystem. SOM is sort of the 
the, the biggest and best one that we're working on right now. We're also working with the Juno tools team and on a couple of other Juno projects. Um, and then the Peggy JV team, which is the sort of canonical SOM team is we've got folks working on the data science backend. We've got folks working on the smart contract infrastructure. Um, and we've also got folks working on the backend protocol. I, I work closely with that team as well. Awesome. Um, so let's, um, let's maybe move to the topic that I think everybody is, uh, is dying to learn. To Juno. Uh, oh, no, no, I was, I was not talking about Juno. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so it, I, I actually, I actually only really like I, I've been off of uh, I, I had been kind of like off of Twitter for the last couple of days, like not paying much attention. And then yesterday I was sitting down with someone. They're like, Juno is down. I'm like, what are you talking about? <laughs> and um, so, uh, yeah, so so Juno, uh, the chain has halted and um, it's been a couple of days now. Um, so what what's the current state of the chain and when is it due to come back online? And then, you know, we can get into like what happened and all the... About five hours from now. Okay, yeah. So um, I, I saw Wolf Contract put out a tweet saying it was going to be like nine o'clock UTC or something like that. I think it's yeah, nine o'clock UTC today. Um, we've got instructions up. I, I need to probably post some updates on that. But so as to what happened, um, you know, we'll be publishing a full postmortem with all of this data. But I'll just kind of talk through it here because it's deep in my mind. Um, I woke up on Tuesday morning and the chain had been down for a few hours. So that, that happened overnight PST sort of, uh, I guess that would be afternoon in Asia. No, that would be like morning in Europe, afternoon in Asia, overnight PST. Um, the chain went down. Um, you know, initially we were not sure of exactly what caused it. What we saw was each of the validators had a different view of exactly what the state was. And we actually had 125 different forks of Juno network. Um, so what, just when you say the chain went down, like, yeah, what does that look like? I mean, like when you're, when you're looking at the chain, when you're validating the chain or where you, when you're, cause I, I like, I'm not validating Juno. I don't yeah. have like a Juno node. What does that actually look like from your, it end? looks like a wide variety of different things. Um, what it looked like, sometimes it looks like all of the nodes on the network panic and everything just stops. Um, that is an awful situation, but sometimes actually easier to recover from than what we dealt with, which is all of the nodes stayed online. They just couldn't disagree. They just couldn't agree on what the next block was. So what that ends up happening is they're just voting continually on what the next block is and just disagreeing over and over again. It's basically like the European par Parliament. Um, and you know, that is a really scary situation as a protocol developer because you're like, uh, okay, so like, why are they disagreeing and how do we find out what that is? Okay. So, so all, all the, so there was like 120 some odd forks or like, you know, different, um, yep. different versions of what the nodes thought the next block should be. Yeah. Each validator had a different view of what they thought the state would be, which is actually, just about the worst case scenario of this particular one. You know, in some cases, it's like 40% of the nodes think one thing and then the rest of the network thinks another thing. This is kind of classically what people think of as a fork. Um, mm -hmm. But 
this was the scenario where not a single node in the network saw the same thing. They were all seeing something different, which is uh, a very, very hard thing to debug. Um, so there were a couple of different options as to what that was. And the Juno team, which is this kind of decentralized team, some people have some formal positions, but most people kind of, you know, working on projects on Juno and contribute to the core. So uh, we had about 30 to 40 people in a Telegram crew, everyone really excited. We had folks from sort of broadly within the ecosystem. Joe Bowman, who you know, was actively involved in debugging. Um, we had a couple of guys from the Secret Network who came over and helped out. We had the Terra team in the room as well to make sure that the um, smart contract vulnerability, if, if we found a smart contract vulnerability or a Cosm Wasm issue, they were aware of it and able to patch it on Terra. So um, that was sort of what happened. And the two different things that we were looking at, one was a difference in build method between validators. And so we were reaching out to all the validators, finding out exactly what version they were running. We had the spreadsheet. What was really wild about that one is that uh, about one third, slightly under one third of validators built the wrong way. And just over two thirds of validators built the right way. So as we were sort of going, it looked like it was going to be really close. And we had a lot of trouble ruling out that as the cause of the fork. <laughs> so like that line of thinking went for a long time. And, and some of my tweets on the topic, you'll see me talking about validator builds. So, so at this point, you didn't know yet what the issue was, but you had validators recompiling the code to, the, to their nodes. Is that, is that right? When you say they weren't building right? Uh, well, we, we, we hadn't asked them to recompile yet, but we, we were just checking what versions and what, how people had built their binaries. And there was a minor, a minor difference that could have made a, made a big difference in the network. Um, that would have like, and this is not something that we had, that, that y'all had like seen before. Like, I mean, this seems to me like a, like an easy sort of, Hey, let's just make sure that all the validators are running the same software. Yeah. Um, it, it, yeah. Well, there was a minor change in Cosmosm in the last version that changed how people had to build it. Some people built it the old way and some people built it the new way. The documentation okay. wasn't like screaming at them that that was a huge issue. So okay. uh, that, you know, things that we can fix moving forward, cleaner documentation on building. That's an easy one. Um, then the other sort of area of investigation, um, I believe Max, who is a community manager at Juno, soon after the chain halt had been going through all of the transactions in the last block and identified a contract that had some very specific, uh, suspicious behavior. Um, so we had some folks dig into decompiling that contract, working on figuring out how to trigger issues within the contract. And uh, after a lot of experimentation and a number of different folks sort of finding different pieces of it, we were able to piece together that this contract um, was the, the cause of the non-determinism. And it was this issue that had been patched upstream um, and had been fixed in Terra. And once we were able to reproduce it, we were able to show that the upgrade that we had planned that would have happened like four hours after the crash, um, we were able to show that the upgrade would have fixed the issue. So, um, at that point, once we had root caused it, that was last night. Well, no, that was a night and a half ago. Um, 
once we had root caused it, we started testing a couple of different upgrade scenarios. Um, and then yesterday at around five o'clock, uh, we finalized the test for the other upgrade scenario, ran it, ran successfully. So we knew that the upgrade scenario we wanted was going to be successful. That's when we pushed out the time. And now we're sort of in the middle of organizing the validators to, to, uh, to get the restart going. Um, we're going to have to dump state from the current network and restart from a new genesis. However, we're trying a new method where we're not going to actually increment the chain ID. We're just going to skip a block so that we avoid the double signed issue that happened on Evmos and mm. uh, hopefully are able to retain all of the IBC clients um, and not have to deal with disruptive downtime on Osmosis or, well, disruptive downtime in IBC, essentially, because... Yeah. The, if we increment the chain ID, we're going to have to submit governance proposals on all of the counterparty chains to upgrade oh, yeah. the clients over on that side, which is massively painful. Let me go that ahead and like tell you. It, it is, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So um, so this is something that had already been identified as a vulnerability in Cosmwasm and had been patched by the Terra yeah. team. Uh, it, so it had gotten patched by Ethan Frey and the Confio mm -hmm. team, who are the maintainers on Cosm Wasm. Yeah. And then Terra rushed out an emergency upgrade to address this. Yeah, because Terra, I think, has the most to lose. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. And and so they had patched already, they had already ran that patch and were running the patched version of Cosm Wasm. Uh, but Juno had yet to implement that patch. We were we we were bringing it in the loop or Kalia upgrade. So, yeah, yeah, you know, it was it. we just okay. You know, I think that no, just to understand like the chronology yeah. of events here. Yeah, yeah. Okay. No, it's it's I, important, and you know, I think that like there's a huge vulnerability that can take down the network that we didn't patch in a sufficient amount of time, and somebody ran funds through a mixer on Ethereum and took down Juno because they probably felt like it. Like mm. we don't really know why the attacker did it um, because they had nothing to gain from this. Was. I mean, there was no way that the attacker could steal funds. It was just, nope. let's just throw, let's just throw off this. Uh, some this people like breaking windows. Network. Yeah. Some people like breaking windows. Like, I, yeah, it's, it's, it's hard to know what the, um, what the motivation is there. Okay. And um, so, so the attacker, um, the, yeah, so the attacker ran a contract. I want to talk about this contract a little bit. Um, yeah. The, atta the attacker ran a contract that provided a non-deterministic um, result. And then yeah. that through. So, can, yeah, can you explain, like, what happened there? So uh, this is the Stargate query vulnerability. Um, Cosm Wasm, a very flexible piece of software, allows you to run queries against the underlying Cosmos chain. Mm -hmm. um, so all all of the queries that a Cosmos chain exposes, you can pull in via a smart contract. That's really cool. That adds a lot of flexibility and developer support. Yeah. One of those queries pulls info about the specific node that we're running on. Um, and each node has a different identifier, a, a specific key that they use to sign all their peer-to-peer -peer, uh, information. So if you query that, it will return something different for each node. So the fix is disallowing the queries that are non-deterministic. But so the, the user had a the hello world contract and they put the malicious code in 
one line it's a one line change from the hello world contract so like when we were decompiling it was really hard to find what was going on um but the the secret network folks uh shout out ass off from secret network who uh pulled out their cosmos of debugging tools and was able to find exactly what happened here um very exciting to see that yesterday because we kind of knew this is what had happened but we didn't have proof yet we were just able to like trigger it we knew it was happening. We didn't know exactly what it was. Um, but yeah, that that's it was a node info query that, that broke Juno. Okay. So essentially this contract was calling up information about the node. That information is like user-specified information or some sort of an ID that's generated that um, isn't known by the network. Um, and... By doing so, did it produce like a hash that was non-determinist, like a block hash? Is that uh, well? It's a it's a hash of the public key. It's I believe it's an ED two five five one nine public key, and they were just hashing the public key uh, from the node. Okay. So like each each node has a different public key. Yeah. Different result. One hundred and twenty five forks. There we go. Okay. And so what the nodes were, what the nodes were in disagreement about was like where where at which point does the node stop and say like i don't know what to do next yeah so uh the trigger for the contract was the attacker sent uh, an update to a value in the contract state and updated it to the number 42 that 42 triggered the node to query for its node id and then say this is the state that we see and that happened on block something, 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 97. So um, block 97 went in. And then on block 98, when the nodes were trying to like add the next piece of state, they all disagreed as to what happened. And, and that was kind of how the how the vulnerability happened. Okay, got it. Um, yeah, I think that's like, that's super clear. Like I, I, yeah. I, I fully understand now, like all the steps that need to happen for, for this to occur. Um, real, real bad. Um, just, just real quick in the comments, I see Andy MC is asking any other chains vulnerable to this attack. I think all yeah. the other Cosm Wasm chains have now patched this. So uh, that's good. There was also a security update from the Compio team yesterday for an unrelated issue. The Juno restart will also include that security patch. Um, and that uh, that security patch has also uh, gone out to Terra and Secret Network and other Cosm Wasm chains. Um, so be assured, the Cosmos community does take security extremely seriously. We work very hard to ensure that these chains are upgraded. And each of these chains has kind of a separate uh, security procedure. So those updates happen at different times. But this, all those new vulnerabilities are going to be accounted for. Oh, cool. And thanks for pointing out that uh, we can actually see the chat in this tool. <laughs> it's nice. I, yeah, I, it's, I, it's I, cool. I, I can actually I, put I it really up on the like screen it. here. Yeah. I feel like a real TV presenter. <laughs> it's it's fantastic. The, the StreamYard, I love. Um, yeah. I, I can't drive it, but uh, every time I get on with somebody and they are driving it, it's it's a very nice thing. Uh, amazing. Um, you anyway, know, but yeah, back to, back back to the to topic at hand here. Um so, like, can you tell me how how you guys, like, what was the process by which you guys um, responded to this? Okay, so, like, once you figured out, all right, this is this is what, what's happening, um, 
well, how long had it been? Like, how long did that take from the moment that everybody realized, oh shit, we're not producing blocks to, um, like this is response. what's happening? Yeah. Um, you know, this is kind of interesting. Um, I think Juno is an extremely decentralized project. Like, we have zero hierarchy within the developer team. So when I woke up three hours afterwards, you know, like everyone had like grabbed something and was working on it and there was no coordination. And um, my role in Juno has always been trying to break best practices from elsewhere in the cosmos. And I was like, who's leading incident response? It was was crickets. And I was like, is everyone okay if I lead incident response? And everyone was like, yeah, yeah, go for it. So I kind of took on the coordinator role and I helped, I tried to say like, okay, Cool. Here's what I'm hearing from everyone. Here's these two different issues that could have potentially caused this. Who wants to work on first issue? Who wants to work on second issue? Go. And then try to, you know, as a sort of incident lead, you want to keep your eyes out, see if there's any new information popping up, help encourage, give more resources to the teams that are sort of like at the tip of the mind shaft, pushing forward the knowledge of what happened. And then when one of those forks either bears fruit or it shows out to be a dry well, you try to redirect uh, effort towards what is important and then just kind of keep everyone moving together. Um, So that's kind of what I've been doing over the last couple of days and and trying to help communicate to the broader community um, about what's happening, trying to be that that central point of communication. I I think next time we need to do a little bit better job of using official channels to do that Mm. communication. I was kind of doing it through my Twitter account, um, which is fine. And, you know, I was being retweeted by sort of the official Twitter accounts as well as the other core devs in Juno. But uh, one of the things that we need to do a little bit better is have one official communication channel during incident response. Um, That is definitely a best practice from sort of elsewhere in tech. Yeah, no, it seems like having some processes. um, In the other room. uh, Having some pro. Yeah, go ahead. One second. I need to go grab some. Sorry. Go, go for it. Um, all right. So um, while, while you guys are just here with me, uh, <laughs> uh, while, while Jack is away um, for a moment here, I'm going to try to fill some air. Um, uh, so yeah, if you, if you haven't yet subscribed to this podcast, uh, hit that subscribe button on YouTube to make sure you get new episodes as they're released. And if you like the, if you prefer just to listen to this, you can listen to it. Um, it's on Apple podcasts on Spotify and everywhere else you get your podcast Just search for the interop. And of course you can go to the, the interop.show to get, um, all the links to places where you can listen to this. And Jack's back. Hey, <laughs> I was just trying to fill some air hey, there. <laughs> sorry about that. No, I, I, I appreciate it. It led me to the interop.show, which is a great, great URL, by the way. <laughs> Thanks. Um, so uh, yeah, so, 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 so having some processes around incidents response, um, I think you know, is probably a good thing. Are, are there um, are there processes that um, that kind of emerge from this, or are, were processes already in place? I, I think I, I I heard somewhere. I think it was on some other YouTube channel, and, and Jacob was talking about uh, Dave from Osmosis having. Uh, like I was looking for this document, but apparently he like wrote up this kind of incident response um, process. Um, yeah, can you tell us a, bit, a little bit about, about like what what's that supposed to look like and 
what do we have yeah. in terms of incident response? For sure. You know, uh, the person who I will always sort of feel in debt to for this knowledge is uh, somebody named Jesse Irwin. She is a name in oh, Cosmos yeah. that is, that is not Jessie. heard that often. Um, Jesse is now at Agoric, leading security over there. Um, but Jesse worked at One Password, led security there, led security in a couple of other tech companies um, prior to getting into blockchain. So she comes out of the sort of traditional computer security world. And she was one of the first people that I know who kind of came out of that traditional computer security world, looked at this world of proof of stake blockchains, just like, whoa, this is crazy. We can't do a one-to-one grafting of sort of traditional processes onto this. So like, how do we think about this in this much more decentralized network where there's all of these different actors, things like responsible disclosure to different actors within the network, very hard. You know, if your responsible disclosure includes 125 validators, there's a lot of places where that information could leak. And some of those validators might even potentially be malicious. So how do you treat the validator set? How do you think about doing incident response in a network where there's no single person who can actually say, hey, we're going to restart the network. As an incident responder, you, you kind of need to be a cheerleader and, you know, a diplomat in a lot of ways and work with all of these various actors in the network. And I, I think Jesse did a lot to sort of ingrain good habits and, and good, good ways of thinking about this stuff into Cosmos. In the work that, you know, Dev and Jesse and I worked out of the same office in Berkeley, um, would love to see Dev's document because I'm sure that he's taken the, the work that he's done at Osmosis and, and done a great job of codifying that. Um, but yeah, I think we've got a lot of work to do to sort of broadly disperse these things throughout the ecosystem. And as far as process, Juno did not have any process on this before. We're setting up weekly security team meetings. I, I think we'll probably do um a vote for some folks to run a, a security council for Juno to make sure that all the dependencies are updated, that anything that might be an issue gets gets dealt with early, as well as to provide a point of contact for outsiders looking to help help the chain. Yeah, yeah, of course. Like ha- having having a decentralized, you know, sort of development team and validator set and like a decentralized community, I think provides a lot of value in terms of. Uh, in ensuring that, uh, well, I mean, I think like on the innovation side, like it, it allows a lot of innovation to flow into a project. But there are times I think where um, having some degree of central command or, um, yeah, like pr- procedures and things like that will will certainly help. And like in incidents is the is the time where that's probably like yeah. the most true. Um, I mean, I think people people look for a leader when things are hard. And like, this is not like, as people who really value decentralization, like that is an uncomfortable thing to say, but it is kind of this inherent human desire and it's not bad. You know, you just need to like give it up at the end. Um, And, you know, that's fine. You know, as long as there's like established procedure on this, you know, we have four year elections in America where the president like gives it up and that's kind of a, (laughs) you know, the, the, the big, the big scale of that. But at these smaller scales, we also need to establish those processes and procedures where, you know, we elect somebody to do incident response, that person does incident response, and then they step back. And like, it's just as easy as that. Yeah, as long as, yeah, I think that's, I think that's right. I think like in, in, 
in a time of crisis, you need to be able to sort of elect people to to take take on those roles. Thing is that hap that needs to happen super quickly, right? Like, and there yeah. needs to be a procedure by which that happens super quickly. Yeah. Um, so what's the upgrade path? Um, you know, and and I guess I guess I'm I'm, I'm curious about why uh, upgrades are so hard, or I guess like why chain re restarts are so hard. And I think Evmos has um, some particularities that make it such that it's harder to do it than perhaps like a, a chain like Juno. But yeah, what's the complexity in, in, in involved here? Chain restarts are hard, just period. Mm -hmm. I, I don't think that, it, no two are the same. They, they all result from different things. And what you really want is when the chain, when you're bringing the chain back up, you don't want any issues. That is a, the, the, like the worst nightmare. It's like have awful nightmare, deal with that, and then have your fix not work. <laughs> That's a real tough place to be in. Um, so, you know, in my mind, when a chain halts, you want to root cause it. You need to figure out what caused the halt. Because if you don't know what caused it and you don't know how to reproduce it, you're almost guaranteed to walk into exactly the same issue when you try to restart the chain. Yeah. So, um, you know, once you've root caused it, then you need to figure out a fix and an upgrade path to that fix. Once you have those things figured out, then you need to schedule with the validators time to do the upgrade or the fix. And you need to have the documentation for that, you know, all of the artifacts like the Genesis file or whatever it is, steps to reproduce all of those artifacts as well as all of those upgrade steps. Um, and then there's the sort of upgrade coordination piece of it. Um, any number of things could delay any of those steps. And in the Evmos thing in particular, you know, they had, it was right after the network started. So there was this whole debate, do we want to restart the network or do we want to start again from Genesis? Um, that was hard. From, uh, oh, know, with, yeah, with Evmos, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, for, for Juno, we didn't have that option. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, and then in Juno, what we did have is like, there was a lot of discussion around different upgrade paths. If we increment the chain ID, which is sort of the traditional way of doing this in Cosmos, um, we lose all of our IBC connections and it leads to this period of, you know, a two weeks on the hub, three days on osmosis. Each chain has different governance periods and the amount of coordination needed to pass governance proposals on potentially 20 or 30 different chains is massive. I've done the work to do that for a variety of reasons. <laughs> I, I have like a runbook and spreadsheets of different validators and like, you know, governance planning tooling for stuff like this. Um, but so we could have done it. Um, but, you know, we found a way that's not that. And, you know, we have to test not only what is the, what brought the chain down? Can we reproduce that? We need to test the upgrade path. So like all of those things take time. And what takes the most time is coordination. This is a truly global community. You know, one third of the people working on this thing are asleep at any given time. You know, if, if people are sleeping eight hours. Um, so, you know, there's a rotation of people kind of doing incident response. Like I got eight hours of sleep, both, both of the nights of this incident. And that's because I was able to pass it off to Jake and Jacob and Demi and the other folks on the core team who, you know, are doing a great job pushing things forward. Uh, so yeah, network upgrades take time. 
um, there's a few steps and each of those steps kind of takes a variable amount of time depending on exactly what the issue is. And it's just very, very specific. I saw you tweet this thing uh, where you had some machine with like 500, like half a terabyte of RAM and 28. Like, what, what was that all about? Like, what, what were you doing here? Oh, yeah. Yeah, for sure. Uh, we, we have that beast running right now. Andrew, uh, Andrew Gulen from the Strange Love team is, uh, is running it. Um, is so it a machine that you we... have like in an office somewhere or is it a, is it a, a cloud? Google, Google cloud. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. We are, uh, Strange Love is a cloud only validator and that, that's why we build and maintain Horcrux, which is I think the best and most secure way to run cloud validators. We can talk about that in a separate discussion. Oh, that's but, cool. Uh, yeah. I, I once tried to launch a validator just for like as a weekend project and like hit my head on a heart on the wall so hard. So yeah. <laughs> it's, it's, it's tough, uh, but Horcrux is really cool. Um, but what is that doing? So when we're doing this upgrade, we need to take the current state of the Juno network, export it into a file, and then that file becomes the new Genesis file for the, the restarted network. Um, in order to test that, what we did is we pulled that Genesis file down, and then we replaced the keys for the top two-thirds of validators by voting power so that we could restart the network. We basically impersonated those validators to start a new network to see if the Genesis file worked, if the fix worked to make sure that the upgrade path that we had, because we're, we're skipping uh, block 98 um, and going straight to block 99, because a lot of validators signed to block 98. And if we try to restart at block 98, that would potentially cause double sign issues. And we might have the entire chain tombstone itself and then mm. it would never restart. And that would be, so like when we're talking about like bad straight into more bad, that would be bad straight into a lot more bad. So <laughs> yeah. um, this kind of automated testing framework allows us to test different scenarios and to have very strong assurance that when we go out and do this live with 125 different actors, each with their own setups, it's going to work. Um, and we, we've been doing at Strange Love a lot of work on this sort of uh large-scale integration testing, um, and we're going to be doing a lot more work on that coming up. The purpose of this test framework is actually to test sort of the combination of all of the different IBC chains with all of the different relayer implementations. Um, we were just able to quickly hack it to do this thing for Juno. Okay, yeah. Um, and so what are the chances that, uh, is it a non-zero chance that uh, that this will fail in a couple of hours, that we'll, we'll run yes. into some issues? <laughs> <laughs> yes. <laughs> what what what's I, that know. what's that percentage? <laughs> I don't know. One to two percent. We'll say one to two percent. Yeah, let's. I'll, I'll be. I'll be very conservative on that. Um, you know, there's like that test framework is incredible. Like the fact that we can pull down and start a hundred and like I think we started twenty eight different validators on that machine each with a full copy of the network state, it is almost an exact replica of what's going to happen when the network starts up. But instead yeah. of each of those validators being one Docker container on one machine, they are potentially, you know, four or five different nodes on 10 to 15 different cloud providers. Like there is just a tremendous amount of complexity with these yeah. live production systems that cannot be simulated 
in any time you're doing an operation like this, there's a tremendous amount of risk. Um, and, you know, I think the only way to deal with that risk is to just be honest about it and to, and to try to do everything you can to test as many scenarios as possible in a reasonable amount of time. And I think that what's kind of obvious when, when we're talking about this is that there's this trade-off between the amount of time that you can take to test versus like the need to get the network back online. Because as you mentioned, this is a billion dollar network. We have a lot of people relying on it. I just threw out that number. I don't even know what it is, but it's roughly a billion, I think at this point, probably a okay. billion and a half. I don't know. People can go check it. You know, check my numbers. Um, but uh, yeah, yeah 1 billion. we need to get, we, we need to get this thing back online. So like, how do you balance the testing time versus getting the thing online. And that's, that's hard. You know, what I, what I try to do is just try to chart as middle of a path as I see and get reasonable assurance that things are going to work. Try to, you know, cross off as many unknowns as you can. And then once you're in a place where enough people on the engineering team are like, this seems right, this seems right. You just go. And that's kind of what happened last night after we root caused it and had tested the upgrade path, you know, everyone's kind of sitting around and they're like, okay, like what's next. And that's when you throw a number out and you're like, we're going to restart it here. Let's go. <laughs> and uh, you just, you just kind of do it. Um, it's uh, I like incident response. It's uh, easy and clarifying in a lot of ways. You know, you have this yeah. like very concrete problem. You've got a ton of unknowns, but you know, you've got ways to figure those out. You've got a team working with you. Everyone, it's a, it's a time constrained situation. Um, it's a, a, something that I've done a number of times in Cosmos. And so what, what, what will be the, are, are there any lasting repercussions here you think, or are, are, are like if the upgrade works and, you know, validators start producing blocks this evening, um, is it just going to, be back to business as usual or, or do you think there's lasting changes that this will um, have like, you know, what, what will be lasting impact on Juno and also I guess on other interchain blockchains? I think that these types of crises are what makes chains strong. You know, you have to get through some unexpected shit. that's really hard when you're bringing a blockchain into maturity, yeah. it is not easy. You know, we've had failed upgrades on the Cosmos hub. We've had tough production issues there too. Um, bringing IBC to market, not always the easiest. People have lost funds. We've had to recover clients. Like things are hard. And these are sort of natural uh, growing pains of a new network. Um, what lasting changes do I want to see after this Juno thing? I want to see regular security meetings from the core team. And I, I think that that's kind of the biggest thing that we can do to address this exact issue, which is we didn't push a security update for a couple of weeks because we, we had a scheduled upgrade. We had all this Prop 16 stuff going and there weren't enough people who were sitting in a room talking about the security of the chain every week to say, this is real bad. Somebody with a test contract can take the network down. We need to fix this. Um, and, you know, that's what it takes. It takes somebody being kind of like persistent about it. And, you know, if we build that in from a structural standpoint where we've got people sitting down and talking about that every week and assessing these different vulnerabilities as they come out, 
then that process is easy. You know, vulnerability comes out, security team talks about it, security team says we need an update, we ship a small patch, we notify validators privately, 24 hour, 12 to 24 hours prior to the upgrade, we notify network participants of downtime, network goes down briefly as validators upgrade, network comes back up. Sometimes we can do this stuff without downtime. Um, and then everything goes on as usual. And then people forget about security. Um, and then that's a danger in and of itself. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, I'm, uh, I'm glad that uh, things are getting fixed uh, promptly, I guess, like that, that this was resolved and that, uh, you know, the no funds were lost. I think, um, you know, when... When you hear blockchain hack, usually the your you know the next question is like how much, yeah. Um, and here at least at least no funds were stolen. Okay, so some market cap was was kind of chopped off the top there, but um, I think it'll 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 bounce back. Um, yeah. Uh, one thing that I do want to sort of point out about this, it, it I, I think highlighted this property of IBC that people were not really quite aware of. And, didn't really understand when Juno goes down, no other Cosmos chain is really affected. Yeah. IBC isolates fault tolerance. Yeah. That is an incredibly important property. You know, when we're talking about some of these like roll up based systems where there's hundreds of chains rolling up into one central chain, that central chain is a central point of failure full stop. And if there is a production issue there, it is critical for the entire ecosystem. Whereas in IBC, with all of these independent validator sets, they are truly sovereign and they don't mm. rely on any of these other chains for core operations. And like the only thing that goes down is the IBC to connection to that chain. It's a lot yeah. like the way computers and the way the internet works and it's highly fault tolerant as an architecture. And I think that as time goes on, more and more people are gonna see this as a huge differentiator for Cosmos. Yeah, you know that that that's actually a, a great segue into another topic I wanted to to talk uh, to, to speak with you about is, you know, like I think that one of the things that drew me to Cosmos and that I really felt was an interesting sort of technical thesis and philosophical thesis was that change should be application specific. Like I still remember. Sonny giving a talk like in Cancun in some small room at the hotel like and, and like talking about application specific chains and this just, like blew my mind right and um, mm -hmm. and for a while I think a lot of chains were having that approach now um, many chains are uh, enabling Cosmosm um, so of course like Terra like Juno is one of them uh, Key is also probably going to I think going to enable it at some point. Osmosis is enabling Cosmosm, and like, who knows? Like, I don't, I don't know. Like, there's probably others that you're aware of. Um, does the application-specific blockchain thesis hold then? Because then you sort of end up in the same situation where if a contract goes down or if a contract has a vulnerability on a chain, um, you know, we we end up in the same sort of um, situation where. Uh, composability with other contracts break. And when you have the interdependency between contracts on the same chain, um, you, you fall, uh, you're, you're a victim to these sorts of, um, to these sorts of faults. So where, where does, 
Cosmwasm and the proliferation of, say, smart contract chains in the interchain fit in the application-specific blockchain thesis? Yeah. That's a that's that's a really good question. I think first off, I'm going to say no one's got the answer to this right now. I'll tell you my opinion on it. All right, next uh, question. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so my my opinion on this personally, most of the chains enabling Cosmwasm are doing it in a governance gated way, i.e., the only entity on the chain that has the ability to launch these smart contracts is governance. Mm. And at that point, it's not a smart contracting chain. It is a different way to do application development on top of a Cosmos chain. Are you building Cosmos modules or are you writing in Cosmwasm? Because all this stuff interoperates. So there's a lot of people who like the development experience offered by Cosmwasm. It offers a lot of the same safety and guarantees that the Cosmos uh, chain development offers, but it does it in a more ergonomic way with some potentially less boilerplate. Now, that's a thing. Um, I think most people who are enabling Cosmwasm are doing it for that reason. Um, so that, I think, fits deeply into the application-specific blockchain thesis. And if you look at the way applications are developed on in the Web2 world, you know they use all sorts of technologies in the back end to provide very specific experiences for end users. So from that perspective, I think this, this definitely fits in with the application thesis. Now, Folks like Terra and Juno, the two permissionless uh, Cosmwasm uh, chains in the interchain, um, those are a bit of a different thing. You know, I think that Juno, if, if we want to think about it from that perspective, <laughs> Juno's application is the experimentation that the chain enables. We're going to be the first folks to ship interchain smart contracts. We're doing some of the best work on interchain DAOs. There's a number of things that are sort of bubbling up on Juno that are going to end up either moving off onto their own chains or being broadly adopted throughout the interchain. There is value in that. And there's a huge community around that right now. And that's what we're seeing in Juno. Mm. And Juno is maybe the first, not necessarily application-specific blockchain, but it is a community-specific blockchain. There is a community of people who are passionate about this interchain technology, want to be the first people to bring it to market and want to find the value in that. And that's, that's what Juno's doing. Terra is a different deal. Terra is a stable coin. Terra's sole mission as stable Quan will tell you over and over again is worldwide UST adoption. If you're looking to drive stable coin adoption, there's a lot of things you got to do and something like anchor and then protocols built on top of that yield are key to that worldwide stable coin adoption. So why not create a permissionless smart contract thing on top of your network to help people build those things yeah. to drive adoption for your stable coin? And, you know, I don't think that invalidates the application specific blockchain thesis. And in fact, a lot of those applications on Terra, Mars Protocol, written by Larry um, from Delphi, a great example, they're going to be moving off onto their own chain, but they're still going to rely on UST. So in that same way where Juno is this kind of community first blockchain, Terra also is this kind of community first blockchain, but their community is based around this stable coin. So. Yeah, I, I think, I think maybe application um, will cease to be relevant in this context. Like maybe, maybe it's ecosystem specific chain or uh, like, yeah, I mean, perhaps like application, I think, 
has connotations of like very specific, like one specific use case. And in the case of Juno, all right, it's the application of smart contract development. But um, yeah. yeah, I think the narrative which, will probably which start. is an application. Interesting. It is enough. an application. Uh, yeah, but but it is an application. But I think it, it it's not the it's not the thing that people think of when they think of an application. Like if you think of like a, an app on your phone, it's like that app does something, right? Usually it like does a, a specific feature and, um, or it serves, it serves a, a very, um, it serves a, a specific purpose, I'd say. Um, yeah. I, yeah. And then, and then the other thing is, you know, as, uh, as Cosm Wasm becomes more commonplace and, um, more chains enable it. What will be the interplay between then Cosmos SDK modules and Cosmwasm, and how do you communicate that effectively to new developers entering the space? They're like, "Hey, we want to build, we want to build something. Um, should we go build our own chain and use Cosmos SDK modules, and perhaps even develop our own modules, or should we just, you know, build this on like?" smart contract chain X, uh, whether Juno or Evmos or Agoric or some other chain that might end up, you know, start competing with these chains. I think that that's, that's a really, um, this is going to be the battleground of the next few years. I think Celestia and the whole roll-up world is also going to be sort of a competitor here. Um, shared security is coming out for the Cosmos Hub. There's a number of different application development platforms that are out there for smart contract development and sort of blockchain use cases. They're all going to compete against each other. Mm. And if the Web2 world is any guide, the things that are going to make a difference are size and ease of use yeah. um, in, in developer tooling. Um, you know, I Cosmos has always kind of distinguished itself in developer tooling. That's one of the ways we've been able to grow. Um, because we've competed head to head with Ethereum and what they have that we don't is size, you know, that Ethereum ecosystem is massive. And, you know, for years I have thought that that is the competition, you know, Cosmos is competing against Ethereum. So like when I started, it was kind of a, a tall order and it felt kind of weird that we were like, we're going to go compete with Ethereum. <laughs> I was like, okay, so like, how do we do that? <laughs> and it's like, well, you build the best in class developer experience and developer tools for people to build their own blockchains. And that's what we went yeah. out and built. And that's how we were able to build this multi-billion dollar ecosystem. Um, is there, yeah. is there, um, I mean, cause I, I think one of the things also that we are building as a, as a, as a community and sort of as a platform is um, standards. Uh, is, is there, um, is there a pathway for, things that get developed in Cosmosm to that become sort of standard in Cosmosm to then kind of move upstream at, into the, into the, I, I see it as upstream, but yeah, like become a Cosmos SDK module where we sort of take things out of smart contracts and build them as modules that are kind of production ready battle tested that people can use. Is that, um, does that make any sense or like, I, I don't know. Like, I mean, it is. I, I think that the, the process that you were mentioning earlier in the call where all these chains are adopting Cosm Wasm, like that's because it's becoming a standard part of the toolkit. You know, we're, we're working on um, uh, the Cosmos Builders Foundation where we're yeah. going to ask all of the different Cosmos chains to contribute to a foundation to help maintain the open source software. Um, Cosm Wasm is going to be a part of that. 
you know, it's going to be the Tinderbit libs, the Tinderbit and the Tinderbit stuff, the Cosmos SDK, IBC, not only the application layer, but also the, the connection layer. Um, and then Cosm Wasm, which is kind of a key piece of that. So, um, yeah, we do anticipate that kind of becoming a standard part of the toolkit. It offers a lot of uh, a lot of affordances to application developers. And, you know, was just talking to Aaron and the Regen team. Um, I think that uh, the Cosmos SDK has been in this, like, period of transition for a while, and it's kind of coming out of it in the application development experience there, the shape of which we all kind of knew what it was two years ago, but it's taken us a while to migrate there because we have a large number of production use cases. That's going to become a lot easier too. So, you know, I think that our aim is Cosmos is to meet developers where they are and to try to bring in anyone and whatever sort of speaks to them. We want to have a way for them to do that within Cosmos. Hmm. Um, so like that, that's one piece of it. But another piece of it is, and I think that this is one that has resonated strongly with people. And it goes back to that conversation about fault tolerance that we were having earlier. Um, if you have your own validator set, you control the consensus and you control everything that happens on that chain, all the way down from the hardware up to whatever smart contracts are running on top of it. And what we've been calling that for years is sovereignty. And that yeah. sovereignty is important to a large number of entities. And no matter what happens, I think that there's going to be a lot of applications that require and desire that sovereignty. So, you know, we're seeing DeFi protocols spinning off onto their own chains. They want sovereignty. Um, you know, but I, I think that what this is going to sort of chat, what, what is going to challenge that and what is going to be an interesting sort of adoption battle over the next few years, the battle between rollups and application specific blockchains. Um, because rollups do not necessarily offer sovereignty. You know, they, they offer a lot of cryptographic security guarantees, um, but they do not offer the ability to control at the consensus level what's happening on the chain. You're mm -hmm. delegating that work to somebody else. What Cosmos has shown, like when we started Cosmos, everyone was like, oh, you're crazy if you think you can ask application developers to launch their own validator sets. That's never going to happen. Mm. We've got 45 Cosmos chains running right They're now. Doing that. <laughs> yeah. there's, there's a meme coin that runs its own validator set. So like <laughs> we've made that a lot easier. <laughs> so you know that, that barrier to entry is not nearly as high as it used to be. Um, and I think that, you know, it's going to lower a lot more over the coming years for a variety of reasons. Um, so anyway, I think that that's kind of this interesting competition that's going to be shaping up in the developer tool space of blockchain. Mm. Yeah, it, it, it does appear to be like, yeah, two, two competing visions for how to scale that, um, that make very different assumptions about the sovereignty of the applications um, that are being built upon those chains. And, you know, I, I don't even know where Solana fits into this, into this vision um, <laughs> uh, because like, I'm, I'm not like super familiar with like how Solana works under the hood. I think like a lot of people are a little fuzzy on that, but if you just sort of look at like the cosmos polka dot paradigm and then the, um, you know, Ethereum EVM paradigm, um, they're, they're, they're two vastly different visions that, uh, I, I don't think, I, I think we'll continue. Like, I don't think one is going to 
stop existing. I think they're just like both going to continue to exist and continue to serve applications and use cases that um, that fit with each of the visions. Yeah, I, I have a very opinionated view on this. Go for it. Um, I think that their visions, both the Ethereum vision and the Solana vision, is that there is going to be one layer one that gains a lion's share of the market and that is the only way it's going to work moving forward. And what mm. we're seeing right now is a battle for which chain is going to win. You know, look at the multi-coin cap thesis for Solana. They lean hard into this. Solana, it's the fastest. It's the best. Nothing's better. It's going to win. 95% of all volume settled on blockchains is going to come on Solana. Everything else is going to roll up into it. The ETH people also chant the same thing. This has been proven wrong over and over and over again in blockchain. We are living in a multi-chain world and have been for a long time. Cosmos yeah. is the only major project that acknowledges that reality, leans heavily into it, and builds tooling for it. This is why I am confident that Cosmos is going to win in the long term. Because this, this multipolar vision of many different entities running these things and being able to interoperate is obviously how it's going to work. And people who think it's one chain to rule them all are trying to sell you their coins. And yeah. like, yeah. Yeah, no, I, I, I think, I think you're, I think I agree. Yeah, I agree. I agree with the, with the thesis that there are multiple chains. I do think that there's, I don't think there's a clear winner. I, I think that there is a space for Ethereum and Solana and sort of the Cosmos vision yeah. to, 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 um, to coexist. Just like there's I, I a space would, for like Linux that, and Mac OS and, and, yeah. and uh, Windows to coexist. You know? I, I would point out that those things coexisting is the Cosmos vision. Yeah, this, no, like, exactly. It, yeah. And like, you know, the, the Solana vision is one really fast blockchain that settles 95% yeah. of all transactions. And like, I, I just think that that's kind of farcical. Yeah. Do we have time to talk about governance or uh, are yeah. you? Oh, definitely. Yeah. Okay. I, I got a few more minutes. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I mean, like, I haven't been the most active in governance. I have not been the most, you know, the, the, the upstanding, uh, you know, community member participating in all the governance proposals and you know, commenting on Commonwealth and whatever, you know, I'll admit to that. Um, I did not get the, uh, uh, you know, there's a lot of airdrops I didn't get because I hadn't participated in, in governance. Um, but <laughs> you and me both. <laughs> but um, I, I, I have been paying more attention since, well, specifically since uh, Prop 16 on Juno. And uh, I, I did I did chime in um, quite a bit on the Prop 188 um, uh, this week, uh, the osmosis uh, proposition. And I feel like there are a certain, I feel like our governance systems on, our, our crypto governance systems, I think people thought that they were one thing and it turns out that they're actually not. Um, at least that's the impression I get. I, I feel like people thought that, hey, governance on blockchain is actually going to be the thing that solves the problem of, like all the problems that we have in our like societal governance problem uh, uh, processes, right? So like democracy. Uh, but in fact, they are just as vulnerable to things like misinformation and 
um, yeah, mostly misinformation um, and uh, and like that mob mentality and things like that. So what you know, like so norms go a certain norms go a certain like distance. Norms go so far as to um, create processes around which we can coalesce to create governance proposals that um, are well thought out, um, are well debated, etc. But they only go so far in the, in that anybody can make a governance proposal um, that can end up being harmful for the community. Yeah, what's your what's your position on this? And I'm kind of rambling here, but like, wh what's your point of view here? And how do you think it improves? Go how do you think we improve this? Go governance is one of those topics that that is prone to a lot of rambling, and I will be rambling in my answer, so don't worry about it. Um, you know, I, I think you're right. Like, there's a lot of people who look to blockchain governance as a way to fix things that are wrong with the existing governance systems. I am personally one of those people. And having seen the sausage be made over and over again in a number of different governance rooms um, in proposals throughout the cosmos, I'm still bullish on that. Um, I think that the tools that we are building, we are finding a way to do this governance of these truly worldwide platforms outside of the law essentially i mean this is, people get uncomfortable when you talk about this but like it is the case you know what jurisdiction does the cosmos hub live in it doesn't so what laws yeah. is it covered by well it's not really so we as a community have to make our own rules we have to police ourselves and we have to do this in a highly adversarial and competitive environment and you mentioned some of the issues with governance and how governance can be attacked. Um, and, you know, how have, I, th I think what we need to look at is how have societies dealt with this in the past? You know, I think some of those things around norms, you can think of as kind of a societal immune system. And we see those societal immune systems being built again and again within Cosmos and on these chains and kind of continually evolving. I think that, you know, this is all, whenever we talk about governance in Cosmos, all those roads are going to lead back to Prop 16 on Juno, um, which is really a great way to approach a lot of these topics because there's not a clear right and a wrong here. There is, and there are a lot of sort of fundamental questions that are being asked by that proposal. Is this person not necessarily somebody you would want on your cap table if you were starting a company? Yeah. Um, did they get it by accident? Yeah. Should we take it away from them? Are they dangerous? Mm. These are all questions that are much harder to answer. But what we are seeing is a community say, these are norms that we value. We're going to put our money and our votes behind that. And we want to see changes based on those norms. And that, to me, is fundamentally positive and fundamentally something that we are going to need to do as blockchain communities if we're going to police ourselves. And is this the right policing action? You know, you can. <laughs> Was Iraq the right policing action? I don't know. I don't think anyone really knows. But, you know, it, these are the types of things that we're going to see played out over and over again in governance over the next few years. And the way that we're going to ensure that those improvements are durable and safe is through improvements in governance tooling as mistakes get made. 
And, uh, you know, I think Sonny would agree with this as well. A lot more people need to read Plato. A lot more people need to go back and read Aristotle. A lot more people need to go read the classics about governance because we're repeating a ton of mistakes in blockchain over and over again. Yeah. Yeah, I have, I have not read Plato or Aristotle. Um, <laughs> maybe, maybe that's next on my list. Um, yeah, I, I, think, I think norms, norm, like I said earlier, like I, I think norms take us part way but in an you know the blockchain governance isn't is i see it as, as like it's an adversarial space and yep. um one needs to be fully conscious and aware of the of of the the yeah the, the characteristics of that adversarial space such that um we're able to anticipate the types of attacks on governance that could potentially cause a lot of harm to an ecosystem and find ways to mitigate some of those attacks by perhaps codifying um, some of those norms on chain. Yep. You know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, <laughs> the validators end up making the decisions. Uh, the, you yep. know, there was a, I don't know if you were on the osmosis um, community call yesterday, but there um, you know, Reda was talking about uh, Reda from Key Foundation was talking about you know, the fact that France has once once you once you've um, finished your term as president, you you go into like this constitutional uh, council. It's sort of like the sages, right? And uh, and you know, in the blockchain space, the validators end up have, taking on this role de facto. Um, and you know, we're we're all sort of beholden to their good behavior. There's no way around this. Um, of course, you know it's fundamentally baked into the system. It's, it's a it's representative. It's yeah, yeah. It's it's a it's a representative shareholder democracy. Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what 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 do you what do you what do you think of this idea of uh, that you know, proposals should be on Commonwealth for some amount of time? Like, because like you know what, back in my day, back in the early days of Cosmos, you know, I seem to remember a time where you know proposals were. Um, Proposals were discussed on on, on, the, on the Cosmos uh, discussion board. Um, you know, a lot of time and, and and energy were going to flushing out proposals with the community before they were posted. But this was a time where there were just a handful of people that were involved in these communities. Most of them were doxxed. Um, you know, we knew who we were dealing with, and you know, had met a lot of the folks that we were talking to on these forums. As the systems grow and um, and become, um, yeah, more where, where there are more participants, uh, people with, uh, with, with incentives that are disaligned, that are not so aligned. Yeah. Um, will governance continue to work at scale? I think that's a great question. I think it's going to be a competition point between different chains but also, I just I, I kind of want to get to this like sort of idealized version of governance. I have been one of the people who's pushed back against this specifically over and over again. This idea that like we need to have this thing on Commonwealth, and if you don't have that, then like tisk tisk, no governance proposal for you. You know what? None of that stuff matters. What matters is can you get the votes on chain? And there's a lot of paths to that. Mm. And the reality is, as long as those paths are open, they will be used, whether by good actors or by bad actors. I thought up a proposal on the Cosmos Hub last year, interchain routing. I wrote some code. 
I talked to about 20 validators and I got it passed. It was 60% of stake voting. We had 99% approval. That never went up on Commonwealth. There were a lot of people who were real pissed at me about that. <laughs> that, I believe, was for the good of the network. And it was great marketing for Cosmos. And we shipped some of the first interchain routing technology. That's cool. So, you know, what I'm trying to do is try to, you know, work with these systems as they are. They are very imperfect. We do need to change them quite a bit. But if we ignore the reality of the systems we have built, we put ourselves in a very perilous position because we avoid thinking about the things that we don't want to think about. And we think that the world fits into this nice little box that we've created when in fact it does not. Yeah. There are many ways to attack governance and we should and will see those over and over again. And what we need to do is build systems that are resilient against that. And that is our mission here. Well, you know what? I think that's a good note to end on. Um, thanks. Uh, thanks for being a part of the interop and for yeah. being on our, our first, uh, I think really well put together live stream. I, I'm really glad. Well, thank you. you. I appreciate you went. having me. Uh, so yeah. Um, and uh, yeah, hopefully we, yeah, I think we should, yeah, we should have these conversations more often. So please yeah. come back. Happy, anytime. happy to come back. Would love to, you know, some upgrade coming up with, with new stuff there. A lot of exciting stuff going on at Strange Love. Cosmos Builders Foundation. Hopefully we'll have an announcement on that soon. So yeah, oh, yeah definitely yeah. we'll have many, many, many more things to talk about the next time, I'm, next time I come on. All right, cool. Thanks a lot. So, Sebastian, thank you. Have a great one. You too.